Hello, everyone. This is Brad Harris with a quick reminder. When you run out of How It Began content, I encourage you to subscribe to my new podcast, Context. In Context, we continue to investigate what created the modern world by considering great books on the subject and distilling their insights. I hope to see you there. All around us, all the time, swirls a storm of information. It's natural for us to overlook this tempest of data. As we move through our lives, we're indulging in millions of years of evolution that's honed our instincts and intuitions to unconsciously harmonize with nature's informational symphony. Our instincts help us stay balanced, for example. The information needed to keep us on our feet reverberates through our nervous system, sending signals back and forth to our muscles to constantly adjust their tissue tension in line with gravity. Our intuitions help us communicate. The information needed for speech is expressed through a developmental acquisition of linguistic rules that by about one or two years old enables us to share ideas with other people through words that express recognizable bits of information instead of random sounds. There's no end to the number of examples we could discuss because at its most essential level, everything we do is based on information. We value information most when we don't have enough of it. When you're lost, you lack the information about how to move through your environment. When a storm catches your community off guard, you lack the information to predict meteorological development. When you're losing a war, you lack information about how to destroy your enemy. In a large sense, history is the story of informational acquisition. Planting the first crops 12,000 years ago was an informational breakthrough about how to ensure steady food. The Age of Enlightenment 300 years ago was an informational breakthrough about how rational inquiry could yield much greater social and scientific progress. The Civil Rights Movement in America 50 years ago was an informational breakthrough exposing the hypocrisy of democratic idealism in a society that oppressed millions. Such events demarcate the milestones of history. But something about our age is very different. A profound change has occurred in our relationship with information. The statistics defy belief, but the amount of information our global society now processes in a single day matches the total amount that humanity had ever processed leading up to around the year 2000. So when it comes to creating and interpreting information, a day's work in the early 21st century exceeds the output of a hundred centuries worth of work that preceded it. This incredible development is not just another informational breakthrough. This is an information revolution. And if history itself can be interpreted as a long project of informational acquisition, then the impact of our current information revolution will supersede the impact of all past events combined. We are wholly departing from the historical trajectory of progress and the technology that's propelling us is the computer.
In the developed world, we now expect computer access like we expect access to clean water. For our very survival in the modern economy is predicated on our ability to manage vastly more information than we could in a thousand lifetimes with just our brains. The hardware and software of our computers have become the appendages of the wetware in our heads, forming a new triad of superhuman intelligence that enables us to remember a million phone numbers, recall a million facts, perfectly preserve a million moments of our lives, create a million iterations of our imagination, and so much more. And because the human brain is the most complicated thing we know of in the universe, computers, as the ultimate tools of the brain, are the most complicated machines we've ever built. We need computers to design computers. But where did all this start? When did we make the leap from building machines for our muscles to building machines for our minds? How did we originate the technology of information that has ever since fed its own growth? I give you computers and how they began. You could hear his frustration mounting with the turbulence of airflow through his nostrils. This was a young man whose mental contours followed the strictest angles of mathematical precision, leaving little room for the errors of human nature, and in his hand he held yet another published mathematical table riddled with mistakes. His name was Charles Babbage, and for several years now, ever since he had graduated from the University of Cambridge in 1814 with a degree in mathematics, he'd been in the self-tormenting habit of seeking out such tables, whether they were the actuarial projections of insurance companies or the title charts of the Royal Navy, to see how many errors he could find. Born into an industrializing England in the year 1791, Babbage was witnessing firsthand just how numerically unwieldy rapid social and economic growth could be for the institutions supporting it. Governments throughout Europe were struggling to keep track of their ballooning populations and finances. Rising trade was wreaking havoc on businesses' inventory forecasts. Banks agonized over interest rate adjustments as they improvised market exchanges for investment and borrowing. And civil and military engineers labored to mass-produce the infrastructure that would support and protect it all, from sewers, turnpikes, and canals, to warships and firing tables for the artillery they carried. Professionals in all of these rapidly modernizing sectors had to keep track of a lot of mathematical information, and so they'd come to rely on the publication of math tables like the one in Babbage's hand. Without those tables, their work would grind to a halt. By 1800, publishing those tables had become a lucrative niche industry, organized around sweatshops of the mind where quantitatively sharp men and women toiled hour after hour, computing an endless series of trigonometry and logarithms using only pen, paper, and slide rule. 
These men and women were called computers, and while most people could sympathize with them if the unending tedium of their occupation produced a mathematical mistake from time to time, Charles Babbage could not. If the Industrial Revolution was mechanizing physical labor, Babbage reasoned, why couldn't it mechanize the mental labor of computing? By the 1820s, Babbage had decided to take action to make his dream come true, petitioning the English government for grants to help finance the construction of a mechanical computer to calculate math tables and print the results. He called this machine the difference engine and argued that it was just as important to the efficient functioning of an industrializing economy and military as the steam engine was proving to be. Unfortunately, his vision for the difference engine was so ambitious that he was one of the only people capable of appreciating it at the time. It required the construction of thousands of interlocking gears to mechanically execute the cascade of additions involved in the calculation of finite differences, which was the prevailing mathematical method that human computers used to produce the results for a range of polynomial equations involved in all sorts of professional work, from projecting revenue growth to determining the propagation of force in a bridge beam to aiming artillery guns. On top of this, one of the most important aspects of the difference engine was that it would directly print the results to ensure the complete elimination of transcription errors that so often plagued human transcribed tables. But this only added further complexity to an already baffling mechanism. So even though Babbage did eventually complete a working version of the difference engine in 1832, it appears that he used it to do little more than demonstrate the potential of artificial computers. When he died in 1871, it seemed as though Babbage's vision might die with him. Yet by then, the problem of informational overload that had motivated him to pursue the project in the first place had only gotten worse. One of the most acute pressure points was suffered by the administrators of the United States Census. The growth of America's population was exceeding traditional means of tracking it, and the 1880 census proved to be a total disaster, remaining unfinished until 1887. With the age-old method of hand-tallying clearly no longer sustainable, census administrators desperately searched for a new method of processing the demographic data of the imminent 1890 census. A mechanical engineer from MIT named Herman Hallrath answered the call, submitting a design for a machine that would tally the information automatically. Babbage's ghost may have been tempted to celebrate the resurrection of the artificial computer concept, but Hallrath's design proved unique, relying on a force entirely beyond Babbage's grasp as he had worked on his difference engine nearly 70 years earlier. Electricity. Hallrath's electromechanical computer started with punched cards. Census takers would ask their standard questions in the field, but instead of recording answers with check marks in ink, 
They would punch a hole in the proper column and row. Back at census headquarters, where millions of such cards were aggregated for the final count, clerks could simply feed the punched cards into Hollerith's machine, which would rapidly stamp one card at a time with a set of spring-loaded, electrically charged metal pins corresponding to each bit of data the census solicited. Whenever a charged pin encountered a hole, it was able to protrude through the card into a small mercury reservoir that was also charged with the same current, and with contact, the pin's electric circuit was completed. Attached to the circuit was a dial calibrated to automatically record the new tally. If the charged pins encountered no hole, on the other hand, the solid spot of card prevented them from touching the mercury and completing the circuit, so no new tally would be recorded. Whereas the 1880 census had taken seven years to tally, with Hollerith's electromechanical punched card computer, the 1890 census tally was finished in just six weeks. The power of artificial computers was now indisputable. But the challenge for Hollerith through the first decade of the 1900s was to customize his machines to assist various business and government operations beyond the census. As long as human computers were still widely available, a lot of organizations struggled to justify the high cost of Hollerith's electromechanical computers. The railroads, however, among America's biggest businesses, were convinced to try the technology made famous by the 1890 census for two main reasons. First was the matter of life and death. Their in-house staffs of human computers were struggling to calculate optimal timetables fast enough to stay ahead of traffic and prevent collisions between trains traversing the same tracks. Second was a financial solution offered by Hollerith to ease the burden of his machine's high cost. He would simply lease them to railroads for much more affordable monthly payments. This was the key business strategy that helped early 20th century punched card computers become popular. Hollerith's budding enterprise, called the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, or CTR, gained over 70 large new customers in just four years between 1911 and 1915. Along the way, he continued improving the technology so that his machines could produce data by automatically punching cards just as rapidly as they had been able to read data on human-punched cards. In 1924, the burgeoning CTR company was restructured, and with an eye toward the European market, it was renamed International Business Machines, IBM. Through the roaring 1920s, it became fashionable among America's wealthiest businesses to acquire as much fancy new office machinery as possible. From electromechanical typewriters and stock tickers to desktop adding machines, many offices took pride in the noisy clutter of their early 20th century information technology, and possessing a punched card computer came to epitomize the elite of the era's self-styled ultra-modern enterprises. 
especially in businesses that facilitated a high volume of transactions or maintained extensive records, such as energy, transportation, and insurance companies, punched card computers could powerfully enhance efficiency and growth. And even after the stock market crash of 1929 ended the work of millions of people, the information processing work of electromechanical computers only increased. Roosevelt's New Deal programs of the 1930s created seemingly endless amounts of new data for the machines to manage. The federal government now had to maintain complicated employment records for the nation's 26 million member workforce and administrate an unprecedented wave of welfare and public works. IBM's business boomed, its sales revenue nearly doubling from 26 million to 46 million between 1936 and 1940, securing its position at the top of the computer industry. But while the domestic demand for information processing was satisfied by the capacity of electromechanical computers, the military demand soon ran far ahead as World War II intensified. The mechanical action of reading and writing punched cards that was integral to computers going back to the 1890 census became a severe bottleneck in information processing speed for wartime engineers in the 1940s. After half a century of technical refinement, electromechanical computing had been sped up significantly much like revolving fan blades, the electrically powered rapid oscillation of pins and gears in punched card computers had been made to flow faster than the eye could see. Nonetheless, the maximum speed at which calculations could be performed via the physical action of moving metal, limited as it was by the basic Newtonian laws of mass and motion, turned out to be nowhere near fast enough to keep up with the real-time data-crunching demands of enemy code-breaking, artillery aiming, and other military activity. American factories were becoming famous for mobilizing massive amounts of materiel to arm the Allies, but it was just as important to arm soldiers with the information to use their weapons effectively, and the production of firing tables in particular fell seriously behind. Just to compute the proper trajectory of a single firing for a battleship gun, for example, required the integration of differential equations in multiple variables accounting for crosswinds, shell type, air temperature, and even local gravitational conditions. Typical firing tables that gunners carried with them in the form of pocket manuals contained aiming specifications for around 3,000 trajectories, and each type of artillery, of which there were hundreds, needed its own unique table. For a terrified 20-something-year-old gunner in the South Pacific, with visions of his home in rural Ohio or the suburbs of Los Angeles flashing before his eyes, Accurate information about how to aim his artillery in the heat of battle could mean the difference between returning to that home and violent obliteration in an alien corner of the world. 
the intellectual warriors of World War II who labored stateside to ensure that young man received the up-to-date firing tables he needed to survive, believed that substituting the movement of electrons for the movement of metal in computers could help keep him alive. And in 1942, two American engineers at the University of Pennsylvania named John Motchley and Presper Eckert secured half a million dollars from the U.S. government to build the world's first all-electrical information machine to process data at nearly the speed of light so that new firing tables could be produced in minutes instead of days. To harness the speed of electrons for calculation, Computer engineers combined the centuries-old science of binary logic with the cutting-edge technology of electricity. Binary logic was considered by engineers to represent the simplest and most reliable way to process information because each logical step could be expressed in only one of two ways, on or off, true or false, yes or no. Moreover, binary logic could be conveniently encoded as a series of ones and zeros, where one represented on, true, or yes, and zero represented off, false, or no. Any information, if programmed the right way, could be expressed as the digital one or zero pattern of binary code. And for people skeptical of binary's power, engineers needed only to remind them of the popular game 20 Questions, in which the identity of practically any object could be determined through a binary series of yes-no questions. To combine that power of binary with the speed of electrons in a computer, engineers converted an electrical component in radios, the vacuum tube, into the true-false logical gateway. Essentially, for an electric current to pass through any vacuum tube, the tube needed to be charged with a small amount of voltage. Turning on or off that voltage, engineers realized, could be used to electronically facilitate binary problem solving. And since voltage charges could be switched on or off vastly more rapidly than any metal pin could be moved in a punched card computer, the digital steps of a binary logic series necessary to compute firing tables, or anything else for that matter, could be executed in a vacuum tube electronic computer over a thousand times faster than any existing information machine. And so, Motchley and Eckert at the University of Pennsylvania strung nearly 18,000 vacuum tubes together to comprise the world's first fully electronic computer a 30-ton room-sized behemoth that guzzled so much power the lights dimmed across campus whenever it was switched on. The press called it the giant brain. Motchley and Eckert called it the ENIAC and touted that it could calculate the trajectory of a shell fired from a cannon faster than the shell traveled. After the war, Motchley and Eckert decided to go into business together building a new generation of electronic computers that could be used for a wide range of information processing. 
perhaps their most successful moment in the venture occurred during the 1952 presidential election, when their computer system correctly predicted a landslide victory for Dwight Eisenhower over Adlai Stevenson. The correct prediction shocked the nation since traditional polls had been indicating a narrow Stevenson victory, and this reignited the public's fascination with computers. Still, aside from these sporadic media headlines along with some science fiction movies, most people never encountered computers in their own daily life through the early 1960s, during which time they were still huge and expensive machines featuring thousands of vacuum tubes and dozens of reels of magnetic tape. Vacuum tubes remained the workhorses of information processing as the electron gates of binary logic series, and magnetic tape had begun to be used to store binary information in the form of alternating magnetic polarity. As long as these large, expensive, and power-hungry parts dominated computer design, government agencies, elite business enterprises, and universities would be the only computer customers. IBM and offshoots of Mochley's and Eckert's company continued to cater to this top-tier customer category, but mainstream demand seemed a distant prospect. Something big would need to happen for computers to get smaller. Something like John F. Kennedy's announcement in 1962 that America had decided to go to the moon. NASA engineers anticipated that the computing power of a conventional IBM mainframe the size of a large room housing thousands of vacuum tubes would need to somehow be implemented into the small space of the lunar module to help the pilots process all of the information for a safe landing where instinct would do them little good. Surveying the most advanced technology in the country, they found that a tiny device out of Bell Labs in New Jersey, called the transistor, could replace vacuum tubes as electron gates. Instead of the delicate and bulky light bulb-like design of vacuum tubes, transistors featured minute crystals of silicon that behaved the same way. As a semiconducting material, silicon exists naturally as an insulator, but when a small amount of voltage is applied, something amazing happens. Silicon becomes a conductor, ferrying electrons along until the voltage is removed. This unique feature of semiconducting elements like silicon enabled engineers to use bits of these materials in place of bulky vacuum tubes to build the logic circuits of a computer. But by the time NASA learned of transistors in the early 1960s, semiconducting engineers had already gone a giant step further in shrinking this novel component of information technology. In the late 1950s, rival engineers at Fairchild Semiconductor in California and at Texas Instruments in Texas had converged on the same insight. 
The semiconducting nature of silicon itself meant that the electronic switch function of transistors, as well as their supporting electronic components, such as conducting wires, capacitors, and resistors, could all be embedded directly into a single piece of silicon substrate. So instead of tediously wiring and soldering a bunch of discrete parts together, whole circuits could be etched or printed onto wafers of silicon. The final result was called the integrated circuit, which allowed for even more dramatic reductions in the size and weight of the computers to be installed in the lunar modules. This remarkable series of innovations, which allowed a dozen ounces worth of integrated circuits to process as much data as a room full of vacuum tubes, was at least as important for the success of the Apollo 11 mission as its rockets and astronauts. And given the conspicuous lag in Soviet computer technology, it's fair to say that America won the space race by winning the information race. Amid the frenzy of the Apollo program, a computer engineer at Intel in California named Ted Hoff made yet another astronomical breakthrough. He pushed the integrated circuit principle one step further, realizing that nearly all the essential functions of information processing, including data storage and a clock to synchronize calculations, could be etched in silicon to form a single microprocessor. Microprocessors represented the final step in making computers economical enough for mainstream consumers. By 1970, Hoff's team at Intel had produced its first prototype, and within five years, microprocessors would be embedded into the motherboards of the first personal computers. Recognizing that a tectonic technological shift was underway among the semiconducting firms south of San Francisco, California, in 1971, journalist Don Hoffler coined the phrase Silicon Valley to popularize the material and geographical epicenter of the modern world's computerization. Reverberating out from these tech companies of Silicon Valley, a stream of new computer products was poised to change modern life much faster than most people would have predicted, for the information processing power of computers was rising exponentially, doubling every one or two years. In 1975, an otherwise obscure calculator company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, named MITS, released the world's first personal computer, the Altair 8800. Little more than a drab gray box about the size of a microwave oven with a front panel consisting of a couple of dozen switches and lights, the Altair seemed useless to anyone outside of the deepest realms of the computer hobbyist world. Costing just under $400, the Altair arrived as a mail-ordered package of parts that hobbyists had to assemble themselves. But for them, this was part of the fun, and what mattered most was that the Altair contained all of the components of a modern computer, microprocessor and all. Thousands of hobbyists indulged in the construction and operation of these esoteric little machines. 
But the Altair kit's greatest legacy turned out to be the way in which it inspired a certain group of computer enthusiasts to transform the popular mechanics community of computer users into a worldwide movement. The principal leaders of this group were Steven Wozniak and Steve Jobs on one hand, and Paul Allen and Bill Gates on the other. Almost immediately after getting their hands on an Altair upon its release in 1975, Steven Wozniak and Steve Jobs set to work on a very simple goal, make the Altair more user-friendly. The modifications they applied to the Altair's basic hardware boiled down to adding a more attractive user interface. Instead of a technical-looking array of some switches and lights, their modified model would incorporate a standard keyboard and monitor. The first Apple computer was born, and it was but a ripple of the tidal wave of innovations and user-friendliness to come that lay at the heart of Steve Jobs' ultimate vision. Meanwhile, Paul Allen and Bill Gates were inspired by the Altair to develop another kind of user-friendliness in computers centered not on the machine's hardware, but on its software. To make any use of the Altair on its own without pre-written software had required hobbyists to actually input their own programming code in the form of pure binary via flipping the Altair switches on its front panel. Allen's and Gates' great insight was to write a much easier to use binary code interpreter for the Altair, which they called the BASIC interpreter, or just BASIC. Once the Altair was coded in BASIC, in other words, once the BASIC software had been loaded, Users could input much simpler commands to get the Altair to do all kinds of things, from math problems to printing short documents to coding still more powerful programs. BASIC became the first software product of Allen's and Gates' new company, Microsoft. Soon, IBM would purchase their software as it attempted to enter the booming personal computer market, leading to the development of the wildly popular Windows operating system of the 1990s. Around 150 years had passed since Charles Babbage had built the first so-called artificial computer. And as the 20th century neared its end, computers finally transcended the merely mathematical motivation of their origin to become comprehensive information machines, empowering a new generation of minds to be less limited by how much they could know than by how much they could imagine. In the early 21st century, computers can process so much information so quickly that we are finally managing to replicate and even surpass some of the informational processing abilities humans have been honing for millions of years. 
Designing robots that can walk upright on two legs, for example, has taken decades of collaboration between DARPA and private industry and cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but the information circuitry is now in place to allow bipedal robots to autonomously run through snow, among other things. Likewise, over 20 years of concerted effort has been required to teach computers to talk, a whirlwind of false starts and breakthroughs involving everything from programming the precise linguistic rules of grammar to leveraging machine learning. But talking virtual assistants now come standard with our operating systems that can hear our spoken words and respond in kind. All of the relatively unnatural interactions we've so far been forced to have with our computers using codes and windows and apps and mice and screens to navigate the bizarre digital terrain of information technology, this clunky computer language that has all too often left older generations behind merely reflects the difficulty of artificially processing the sheer amount of information involved in how we intuitively operate in the world. But the information revolution is now changing this. Being glued to our smartphone screens or needing specialized skills to use new programs will be old-fashioned curses in the near future when our computers are smart enough to coordinate all of the back-end programming and networked information processing needed to meet us on our own terms, out in the real world, through everyday encounters. A future when accessing the very best of our superhuman intelligence will be as easy as having a conversation with a friend. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you happen to listen. It only takes a minute, but given how new the show is, positive reviews make a huge difference in boosting How It Began's visibility. If you've already reviewed the show, I want to thank you for helping me realize my dream to make this podcast a successful, sustainable venture. For more information on this episode, including a select bibliography, visit howitbegan.com. I'm Brad Harris. So long. So long.